Welcome to Global River Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org. If you uh, have not received a, an outline on the sermon this morning, uh, we can get you one, but I would encourage you to pull out your outline. Make notes to it. Take them home. Meditate on the words. You know, each of us, I know Bishop shared uh, last week, it's good to meditate on the things that you've heard. Get it down deep into your spirit, man. I, so I just uh, want to encourage you to follow along. I've titled today's message, The Making of Friends. And out of John 15, at the top of your outline, Jesus said this to his disciples. Now realize, this was about, theologians say about three to three and a half years Jesus was in his ministry, right? He didn't begin his ministry until he was 30 years old and he was baptized. He went to John at the river and John tried to say, no, I, I can't do this. I, you should baptize me. And he said, no, it has to be done so. And you know what happened? At that moment, it says heaven, literally in the Hebrew, the, the heavens were torn wide open and the, the father spoke, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, released his anointing over his sonship of his walk. And then he went on and said, this, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And then it goes on and says, then Jesus led by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. He didn't fight the devil until he was baptized, both spiritually and physically, in that water and also in the fullness. And so there's something about this. Just before, at the end of the three and a half years of sowing into the 12, he then calls them in John 15, I no longer call you servants. I now call you my friends. And I've just been meditating on that for hours. This whole week is like, what is that? I'm getting zapped right now, so I know the Lord wants to do some revelation. Let me pray. Lord, we just ask for the revelation of the understanding, that spirit of wisdom and revelation Paul talks about in Ephesians. Paul he said, I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ would be yours, that you would understand the fullness of him. God, I pray that you set me aside. Speak now, Lord. Just take hold of my voice, my heart my will and my emotions, and speak your truth that we might be better for. For we know that the word of God is full of living power, Hebrews 4.12. It is full of living power, and it's able to cut between the soulish realm and the spirit realm. So cut through this morning, God, and give us a revelation of what you wanted to tell your people this morning in Jesus' name. So if you'll turn to the top of your outline, the making of friends... Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, I no longer call you servants, I now call you friends. Well, what was it? This, I was kind of meditating, I was thinking about all the mess ups. You think about, do you love Peter? I love Peter, right? He's like this arrogant character. He's, he often puts his foot in his mouth. He says, I'll never deny you. Yeah, you're going to deny me three times. And, and then he goes off and cries and even curses out to a, a servant girl. Then he leaves and goes back to fishing after Jesus' death. And Jesus finds him. And John says, as they're standing in the boat fishing again, Jesus is on the shore cooking breakfast. And John says to him, he says, it's the Lord. Peter's the one, puts on his tunic, dives off the boat, swims to shore, and in the interchange, he says to him, Peter, do you love me? Do, do you really love me, Peter? 
three times, three denials, three questions of that depth of his love. And he says, now feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. There was something about Peter. I just, I just love the guy. But the, you know, the personalities, if you ever, you know, just think about the personalities in your own family, in your own sphere of influence, right? There's just tons of personalities and drama. And so here he is, he's working with the disciples for three, three and a half years, and something took place in the transactional progress of that walk. I no longer call you the servants, the obligated ones to do what I've been telling you to do. I now say you're my friends. What happened? What was the transition? I'd really like to know that. Um, so Paul writes this in Philippians 1.6. I love this. Philippians 1.6, he says, I am confident, I'm certain that God who began a good work in you will perform it or continue to work it until the day I come. So he put being confident of this very thing. So he began a work in you. Now you might say, well, you know, the day I gave myself to the Lord. Well, you did. You surrendered. But guess what? He chose you. You didn't choose him. He chose you. He drew you. He says, no one comes to the Father unless he's drawn. So there was something going on in the makeup of your circumstances, the situation, the good, the bad, the ugly, and all of a sudden it's like, I give up. I just, I'm done. Man, he, he just loves to get us in that place. Sometimes we've got to go so low, you can finally look up. You've got to finally get to the place of your own death. You finally find life. And so it's in that surrendered place. And so he says, he began a work in you. He's working it. You know that song he says, even when, he's, when I don't see him working, he's working, right? It's like, where are you, God? I'm, I'm working, I'm working. Yeah, but, yeah, but, no buts, I'm working. So there's something about he who began this work in you. Now, I don't know when he's gonna return. When he says, he who began the work will perform it. He's performing, he's working. Remember last week we talked about uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago, the anvil of life. You ever put a piece of metal on an anvil and you start beating that thing and then they heat it up and they beat it? And they, What is that? You're being shaped and formed on the anvil of life. Sometimes there's sparks and there's heat and you're getting bent. This I don't like this. Yeah. It's going to be good for you. <laughs> I don't see it. It's going to be good for you. Right? He says, so he's working. He's working, and, and whether he comes back for us or we go to meet him, it doesn't matter when it's finished. And what's so praise the Lord, do you realize where you were? Let this be the beginning of your walk over here, right? It's like, man, I am a mess. Bishop was praying this morning, in our mess, Lord, you give us a message, right? right? And that's our testimony. It looks like a mess. No, it's a testimony. And so here we are, we start the journey, and he's working, he's working, he's performing, he's cutting, he's, he's shaping, he's cooking, he's getting all the, imp- thank God I'm not there, but I'm not where I'm going to be, right? He's wor- now, you've got to submit to the willingness of that, and the more you search, this is where friendship comes in, the making of friends. Would you love to hear at the end, that's my friend, this is my friend, whoa, I'm getting, getting it right now, Lord. When the Lord was, have you seen my friends at Global River? Come on. Just get that down into your spirit, man, for a minute. What is it in the transition that takes you? He said, I chose you, and I continue to progress in this. 
Well, let's look at some of the craziness of these disciples. That's a good way to start. Here they are. They're fishermen. Jesus shows up. He says to push their boat out, and he starts preaching. Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee and Andrew are there, and Jesus is preaching the word. And at the end of this, they drop their nets, and they follow him. He says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So here you got these commercial fishermen, rough, tough Peter, probably arrogant, pridefully full of himself. And how about the tax collector? How about Matthew, the tax collector, right? These guys had issues. They had issues, just like us, just like me. You know, and what are they, so here they are, they're selfish, self-centered, they argued over and over again, who's the greatest? I think I'm the greatest. Hey, John, did you see me on the mission trip, right? When they went in and out 72 by two, they come back and they're arguing about, I'm so great, and Jesus, what are you, what are you talking about? And then he takes a little child and sticks the child right smack dab in the middle, he says, Look, it's not about those serving you. You become a servant leader, and unless you become like this one, you will not even enter the kingdom of God. There's a childlikeness that we got to get. That's why I love to watch our children worship. and They don't care. It's like, you know, running all over the place, right? They're not house broke. They're up, you know, they're pulling blankets. But there's something about the freedom of that that just releases them, and, and God loves it. He just, he loves it when we act out of a, take your controls off the stuff that's just like, oh, I'm gonna be so religious. Man, ugh. it's like, come on. I'm not saying be weird for the sense of being weird, but I'm saying, listen, be free. When, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. If he tells you to dance, there's some of you men I'm speaking to right now. I remember, man, I, this is about the max that I could do for dancing. And then I read that thing about David and, you know, you want me to get undignified? I'll get more than that. I'm like, that sounds scary. And so, hey, just if the Lord tells you to worship in any way, worship him. And so there's this thing. What's the progression? Jealousy. So they're, they're, they're jealous of each other. I'm the greatest. No, you're, how about this one? They had so little faith. Remember in Mark chapter 9, Jesus takes in the, the chapter before he takes all 12 and he says, I'm imparting to you power and authority over, over demons that go and preach the gospel. Then he gets led by the Spirit up onto the Mount of Transfiguration and he takes the three close ones, Peter, James, and John. There's a message there. He doesn't take all 12 because you know one of them's a devil, right? He said that in John 6 at the end. Remember when he preaches the word in John 6, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not worthy of being mine. And it says some of the disciples left him at that point and they never walked with him again. And then turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave also? And they jump. Peter opens his mouth and says, oh, where, where would we go? You have the words of life. Something happens when you speak. Life comes into me. I, where would we go now? You've ruined us. And he says, yes, I've called you, but one of you is a devil. Can you imagine the 12 of them like, oh, it's probably that one. <laughs> no, it's not me. It's got to be that one, yeah. right? So he, he doesn't reveal that until the, the Last Supper when he says, the one who dips the bread in the sop with me, that's the one that was Judas. Now, why in the world would God have a devil on his staff? 
because he's greater than our ways. His ways are much. See, he, the Lord uses the devil all the time. <laughs> he's a pawn. He's a created being. He's about ready to go to the barbecue pit, and we're going to all be there. It's going to be amazing. But there's something about it. So it's like, why would this guy even rob from the purse? Man, the, his time will come. And so his ways are much bigger, much bigger. So here they are. They're, they're faithless. They, Mark 9. The little boy, they, the nine that are down at the bottom, and the father's got a demonized son. The other three are up communing with Moses and Elijah, and the father's there, and this is my son in the cloud, and John and Peter and James. They're like, whoa, oh, we want to build an altar? And the nine are down in the valley, and they didn't get to go up. We ought to be jealous about that. And they can't deliver the little boy. And then Jesus comes down, and he is really, this is probably the one time he's so upset with his disciples, I gave you power and authority over the demons, and you can't deliver this boy? You faithless, perverse generation, bring the boy to me now. As soon as the boy shows up, he manifests in the dirt, and, ah, and asks the father, what's going on? How long has this been going? He's not undone by the intimidation. Father explains, ever since he was a boy, child, he tried to drown him and throw him in the fire. And there's this exchange. Can you help me? Of course I can help you. Well, help me with my unbelief. And then he goes on and says, if it's possible, you could do it. What do you mean? If it's, if all things are possible, if you believe. And at that point, he delivers them. And then he takes the boys back to the house. And they're probably like, you just called us faithless and perverse. That's like disturbing. You know, we left our villages and our wives and our fishing business. Why do you call us that? He goes, well, this kind that you were dealing with, this kind only goes out by prayer and fasting. You need to get your prayer and your fasting on in order to deal with the darkness that's going to come across your life. He says that in three of the Gospels. One is his prayer. And so there's something about the training and the equipping that takes place. And so we see these fishermen. Then they want to burn up the Samaritans. They go to Samaria, which was against their culture. And at that point, he says, do you want to, you know, those Samaritans, they're, they're rejecting your message. You want us to call fire down? We'll just burn them all up. Now we're not faithless anymore. We got fire. And so, what's the matter? Tighten it up. Okay. I tightened it up. All right. So at this point, it says, you're, you, you, you've called us faithless. Well, now we have faith. Why don't we burn up these Samaritans? He goes, you don't know what spirit you're of. Now you've got a murdering spirit that's tied into faith, and I've got to work with these guys. <laughs> then he goes on and says, what about those that are using your name, and they're not with us? So this is the exclusive group. And we told him to stop using your name. He says, don't do that. If they're with us, they're with us. They're using my name. Don't, you're not so exclusive and you're not so filled with anger that you're going to burn people. Don't you know what spirit you're of? See, he's working with these guys. They're not friends yet. They're serving, but they are not arrived yet. He's still working with them. He's still working. He's still working. So we see this. Isn't that my story? Isn't that your story? He's working with us. He is like, but God, I, I got a long way to go. Yeah, keep working. Let me give you a little quiz here for a moment. So multiple choice, okay? A, B, and C. 
So you tell me which one is the right one. I guess we're still cracking. We're good? Okay. Multiple choice. What is a true friend? A, he's the list, it's the list of contacts in your social media network, your friends list. B, a person who acts as a supporter of your cause, your organization by giving financial support or help. C, a person whom knows you very closely and has a mutual bond of affection and loves at all times and sticks closer than a brother. You vote C? Amen. It's that one who knows you, there's a mutual bond, and even though they know you, they still stick close, and they are closer than a brother, even when things are not going well. True or false question? A true friend is always family, but a family is not always a true friend. Is that true? That's really important. This is part of the premise of where I believe Jesus wants to take us this morning. There are, there are friends that are true friends and they're actually family. Amen. And they are closer than a brother. They will stick with you. But then there's family members who are not really friends. Amen. If you've been in a family, there's drama. And you know, some you have to put up boundaries and you love them in spite. And, but friends, I'm not so sure. So what's the principle here? Think about this that Jesus calls them now friends after all these years of working with them. You're no longer a servant. You've moved into this place of friendship just before he goes to the cross. And so this place of family, once you're born again, here's the concept. Once you're born again and your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you are now, you, it says you have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So it's not like, well, you know, I'm sort of in the kingdom, I'm sort of not. No, you're not. If you're not in, you're not in, right? You can know that by lordship. Is he the lord of your life, or is he just some insurance policy that you've tacked on to what you're doing? If that's the case, you're probably not even born again. So this place where the, the gate is narrow and it gets narrow, only a few ever find it, But there's something about once you have been born again, maybe you're not a friend of God yet. You've still got some challenges and issues and stuff going on because we're not perfect, right? But you're in the family because Galatians 3, he says, once you have become a child of God, you are now heirs and joint heirs of the promise. Father Abraham, we now call him Abba, Father, right? So there's this place where we've become part of the family. We're in the family of God but we're not friends yet. He's still working on friendship. And how do you know if you're a friend? Ooh, nice that you should ask the pastor that because the pastor's been asking himself that all week. What is it that makes us a friend? Well, let's turn to John chapter 15 and let's look at what Jesus uh, kind of preambles what he's saying here. John chapter 15, John 15, and let's, let's just begin in verse 7, 
If a man doesn't, uh, yeah, verse seven. If you abide in me, I'll read out of the King, New King James, and may I'll look at New Living Translation as well, but it says, verse seven, John fifteen seven. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is the Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and he abides, and I abide in his love. These things I've spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you, that you, your joy might be full. There it is again. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what the Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things I have heard of my Father I have made known to you. New Living says it this way. Let me pick up in verse 13. There is no greater love than when one lays down his life for his friends. Certainly Jesus did that. You are my friends if you do what I command. If you do what I say, has he done things to tell you some things to do and have you done them? And that could be, you know, it's obviously the Ten Commandments, it's those, right? But what about when he tells you, I'd like you to go into that store and you'll find the person in red shoes and I'd like you to prophesy to them. Well, that, whoa. (laughs) Or I have a dream. What if Joseph didn't listen to the dream? Marry this woman who's pregnant out of wedlock because what she carries is holy. What if he didn't listen to the dream that said, take my son and go to Egypt because Herod's going to kill him? Pay attention to the dreams, the revelation, the word, and what did he tell you specifically to do? Those are things where he's saying, you're my friend. If See, if a friend calls, says, I got this call the other day. He says, can, you, can I use your truck? We got to go pick up this door. And said, yeah, let's go get it. See, a friend will inconvenience themselves. They will be available, even though it's not convenient for me. I had other plans. But he's the Lord. <laughs> and if the Lord can, I've often said, I would love to hear the, the Father say, go to Global River. They're my friends. I will do, they'll do what I say. They'll go to that nation. They'll, they'll go downtown. They'll, we can count on them because they're our friends. They hear God. That's my desire is that we would be so, and, and I'm praying for myself. I'm like, Lord, we want to be so sensitive to what you say. So what is it about this friendship? Well, there's, a, there's some really interesting things. There's one that in the example, scriptures, I've looked at who are some of the friends of God. And there's this place in the scriptures. There's this place in scriptures where David and Jonathan, what a great scripture. Um, 
I'm going to ask Jim to put that up. There's this place in 1 Samuel chapter 18, 1 through 4. I started looking at where are these friends that are in the scriptures and what were the attributes of those friendships that we might be able to glean from? And you, you probably know the story. I think actually Bishop might have referenced it last week where David and Jonathan, but I dove into this even more. Let me, let me give you a little quote. True friendship is a life in which we live outside of ourselves gladly caught up in the web of another's life where we can love and serve them in moments of self-forgetfulness. A true friend is someone who's caught up outside themselves, gladly connected in love to serve others in self-forgetfulness. You remember the story. You know, David is called, he's anointed. Saul has messed up. He's gone off and he's got into witchcraft. He's disobeyed. When I tell you, destroy the Amalekites, he doesn't. And finally, the Lord says, I'm sorry I ever made him my king. He has made free will choices that are no longer in my will. I can't trust him. Ooh, that's scary. And so there are those free will choices he makes. He goes, I'm going to anoint another king. And you know the story of Jesse's sons, the, the little one, David, who's out in the field and call him in. The other sons are not the ones, even though they look big and bad. And no, I want David. David's anointed, and then he ends up in Saul's house playing the harp because an evil spirit is tormenting David in his disobedience. Because So disobedience is as the spirit of witchcraft, 1 Samuel 15. He's now bewitched by his disobedience, and David plays the harp to get him into a place of peace, and yet Saul continues. I, I forget how many times he tries to kill David. Jealousy of David. David's killed his 10,000. Saul's killed his thousands. Yet Jonathan knows, Jonathan is next in line. When Saul is finished, Jonathan is going to be king. He is Saul's son. But Jonathan knows by the Lord, Samuel has anointed David to be king over Israel. And instead of being jealous, competing, working with his father to kill him, of course Saul says, don't you know he's going to try to be king and you're not? Jonathan, look at what he says in 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. Jonathan loved David. There was a soul connection. There was a soul. There was this thing. It was a God thing. It was someone, I don't know about you, but there are probably very few true friends in your life. It's just, it's just the nature, right? But when you find one of them, oh, man. I'm going to honor my friend Phil here in a minute, and Pat and I will probably be crying if I can get through it. The this, this soul, it says, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to the father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped his armor and all that gave it to David as an act in the covenant. After Jonathan and Saul are killed in battle, I am distressed, it says in 2 Samuel 1.26. David writes, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me, and your love to me is was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. 
there was such a deep love that was in that bond of fellowship between Jonathan. He actually becomes his armor bearer. But there's some really neat words here. If you study the Hebrew on this, it says his soul was knit. That word in the Hebrew is gashar. That means to be tied together, to uh, be so wound together. It's the same word that the prostitute Rahab, when she's running the house of ill repute in Jericho, and she hides the spies. And the spies said, you know, well, I'll hide you, but you got to promise when you all come, because I know you're coming, and you defeat all of these, you'll spare me and my family. He says, well, if you'll put a, if you'll fasten, if you'll knit a gashar, if you will gashar the red scarlet outside your window when we attack Jericho, you'll be spared. She did it. She was knit together. And we know, know, we all know that she becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, the woman of the house of ill repute. You think God can do a work? He's working, Amen. right? And so we see that, that Hebrew word, gashar, tied together. But there's this other thing where when after Jonathan's death, it says in the Hebrew that Jonathan, he was very pleasant to me. That Hebrew word, an extraordinary. His love for me was extraordinary. That word in the Greek, an extraordinary, is pala, and it means beyond your ability to even understand by your own mind. There was such a connection in the soulish realm there. He says, it just, I can't figure this out. Why did Jonathan love me so? We know that he spared, he helped spare his life, got David out of there when he was about to be killed by Saul again. Well, I just want to share with you, I want to honor my friend Phil. He's in heaven now. When Phil and Pat came here, early on when I had first come here, actually, um, Phil was a, in the natural, he's a New York, New Jersey guy. He'd been a drug dealer. He'd been a drug addict. He'd been a felon. When he was given a choice to either, you're going to either go to jail or you're going to go to Vietnam, he chose to go to Vietnam. He became a demolition guy in Vietnam. He was there during the Tet Offensive, struggled with PTSD when I first met him. Did his prayer ministry to help him work through that, the nightmares he had. But he was more than all that garbage because God was working with him after he got saved. He was a man of faith. And shortly when we started on our first mission trip to Brazil, before we left, he came up to me and he said, I just read this and I'm your armor bearer. I said, I don't even know what that is. What, do you, I mean, what is that? And he said, just like Jonathan was to David, I'm your armor bearer. Wherever you go in the earth, I go with you and I'll take a bullet for you. I said, no, I don't want that because you don't have any choice. And if you know Phil, you didn't have any choice, right? He was my Peter. There was times when, man, I, I, he would get out of the boat and he would, like, man of faith, I saw him lay hands on, on people that were demonized and they'd get set free. He would bring all the dancers in Brazil and he'd release the, they, he actually had a name in Brazil called the, the uh, Fogu. He was the minister of fire. Dr. Fogu, the minister of fire, he would gather all of them. And when we got into doing deliverance tents for Randy Clark and Bill Johnson and Leif Hetland, we learned early on that if you have translators that are demonized, it's not really good. 
We learned that the hard way. And so I said, Phil, get all our translators together and release the fire on them and dismiss the ones that manifest. And he got the name. I remember there's a place in Brazil one time he had lined up. There were 200 plus children. And they would come and they, my senor, mice, mice fogo, mice fogo, senor. And he lay hands on them. And the kids are electrocuted. Nine, seven, eight-year-olds electrocuted in the Lord. Man of faith. But there were times when I wanted to throw them out of the boat. <laughs> Good Lord. You know, you can take the man out of Jersey, but I'm not sure you can always take the Jersey out of the man. <laughs> but that was what he, he'd been in bar fights. He had hands as big a man. You don't want to mess with There was nothing human he was afraid of. Nothing. And I remember my wife told me, she says, whenever we open a nation for Global River Mission Field, I have to go with you. And she did. And so... On our first trip, we'd heard about Nepal. There was a group of about 24 churches there. They were in need of support. And someone who had introduced us to them and like, okay, we're going to go to Nepal. I don't know anything about Nepal. I've traveled through China. I've been in Hong Kong. I've been all over the place with General Electric. But I don't know anything about this little 26 million people between China and India. But we got called there. And as soon as we got called there, my heart was for Nepal. And so Ginny, my wife, and, and Phil, we, we flew there by ourselves. We met our, I called up our leader. said, we're coming. We need a place. We'd learned by this time, we need a place. Get us a hotel that's good and it's above the normal. And get us a Land Rover because we're going up into the, hill, into the Himalayas, 6,000 feet. And we got we to gotta see this church. I want to see hands-on. I want to see what's going on here. Well, our pastor, Prem, love him. Instead of the $1 a night hotel that he would normally stay in, he got us a $15 a night hotel. 12 hours, no power, no heat. We're there. It's wintertime. We arrive there. The Land Rover he got, the tires were bald. The windshield wipers didn't work. The driver looked like he had just gotten out of rehab. And I'm like, this is what we're going up into the mountains with. But we'd already paid the money. It's all there, you know. I remember the first night, 38 degrees in the, in the hotel. The blankets were so molded, we put, my wife and I, we're sharing the bed. We got our own room. Phil has his own room. We put the bunks together, but there's a piece of wood between them. My wife never complained. I froze all night. I couldn't get close to her. And Phil, who loved it cold, oftentimes he would sleep in his tidy whities and keep it at 60 degrees. You could hang meat when I would go with him. But he came out of that hotel room. We got to get some coffee. And I, and I don't want to be crude, but just so you know, I said, Phil, how are you doing? He goes, quote, I feel like the brown stain on the underwear of life right now. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that communicates, but let's go get the coffee. Time to throw Peter out of the boat. But there was this place where he was, when the Agent Orange that he'd been exposed to in Vietnam. One day he called me, see, Pat can't do pain. You can't watch this big, strong guy who can't handle pain, and you can't see him degrade. She goes, I can't do this. You got to do this. I said, Pat, I, I got this. And so when that cancer entered his kidney, he had a cancerous tumor in the kidney related to that Agent Orange, he called me up one day, said, you got to get me to the hospital. I picked him up in my truck. He was climbing through the back of my truck. They gave him so much morphine in the, in the hospital, said, we can't give him anymore. 
Finally, they did the operation. They got it out, and it looked good, but then it metastasized and became cancer of the spine. So they irradiated his spine, and then it was difficult. Over the next, it was a total of five years, he, he did. He said, I, I go with you wherever we go. Six weeks after his surgery to remove his kidney, we land in Nairobi, Kenya, because Leif Hetland had asked us to come run the deliverance tents for him. We're going down a road that is not a road, okay? We're in a bus, and this thing is rattling. I'm not exaggerating. You could lose your teeth. And he had just had surgery, and he's in the back, and he's just bearing through it all. When it came time to go to our, one of our trips to Nepal, I was really concerned that Phil was... He, to climb those mountains and all, no. And to things that could happen, no. Lord, what do I do with this? And one of the ladies, a missionary from Japan, came here, and she came up to me and said, I had a dream that one of your warriors was on the battlefield, and he's wounded, and he can't go with you, but he won't come off the battlefield. you got to get him off the battlefield. I said, I know exactly what that is. And I went to Phil, and Phil was really angry with me. He goes, I go wherever you go, and I take a bullet for you. I die for you. I said, No. You're not going on this trip. I'm exercising pastoral authority. You're not going. Do you know on Phil's deathbed, just before the morphine took him into a coma, he said, I need to work this all out. I'm clear everywhere, but I need to forgive you. I said, for what? When you wouldn't let me go with you. I made a covenant. See, he would have died out there for me. I knew that. Something about the soul connection. And as it was going downhill and we were camped out at hospice and the morning that he, the afternoon, evening that he died, I was supposed to do a funeral at the funeral home and Phil's vitals were going down and I had committed to Pat, I'm going to be there for him. When he passes, we're going to be there. And You know, I, they say they can hear things in coma. I, all I can tell you is I've had examples where it just looks like that's true. So I spent, at that point, Jack's, uh, Jack, Phil's brother-in-law, had come in from Jersey. He was in the corner of the room of the hospice. Pastor Willie and Pastor Nilsa and myself were there. And Phil was in a coma. And I mentioned, I said, you know I'm really, I don't want to leave here, but I, I, I made a commitment. There's people waiting for me. It was as if Phil heard that, and his vitals crashed. And we turned, the nurse came in and says, whoa. And we told Phil, it's okay, Phil, you, you can let go now. We, we got this. And Nilsa put on a song by Matt Redman called 10,000 Reasons. And as we sang that song, my friend went to be with the Lord. That song is an amazing song. I encourage you, just look it up. It's Matt Redman's song, 10,000 Reasons. And it says, on that day when my strength is failing and my end is near and my time has come, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. There's this place where there is something, I wanted to honor friendship 
because there's something about those kinds of connections that are beyond your human capability to understand. But that's what God wants. I no longer call you servants. I call you my friends. No greater love than this that you would lay down your life for my friends. Is that what God is inviting us in that relationship with him about? That all of our stuff that we trade our birthrights for that have absolutely no long-term meaning. I'm challenging all of us on that friendship with God that he wants us to be his friends. And I've been privileged to know Philip Walls is my friend. Now, if we look at others in the Scriptures who were also called friends of God, what was it about their attributes? If you look at your handout, there is this transition that takes place from being a servant to a friend. So, who were the friends of God? Abraham. He believed God. See, remember we read that in John 15. If you believe me, if you do what I say, if you love me as and love others, I command you in this. Well, God, it counted him as righteousness there, 1A. Abraham was called the friend of God because he believed him. He packed up and left, went where God told him. Moses, I don't know if this was friendship. He certainly was an amazing, but it says God spoke to him face to face like a friend. Lazarus, how about that one? Number three, it says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He's died, but now I will go wake him up, John eleven eleven. So there was something about the friendship of Lazarus. In fact, when Jesus would go to Bethany, he would stay with Lazarus and the two sisters, Martha and Mary. And you know that story, right? I love Bishop, I think, shared it last week, right? Why didn't he just, like, go there and heal him? Why the drama, four days stinking in the tomb, <laughs> God likes drama. Uh, it, be, it turns out that sets up the next week of going into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which fulfills Zechariah's prophecy. Here comes the Son of God riding on a donkey. They would not have done that when they would have laid down all the palm branches. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, who's been dead four days in the grave, and now he's alive. Amen. That testimony opened up the prophecy of fulfillment. So God will do anything to fulfill what he said he's going to do. And so anytime when it looks really helpless, Peter, James, and John, when, when uh, Jairus' daughter has died, she's dying, and then she dies, he takes Peter, James, and John in the upper room, and all the naysayers, are, he, he's, she's already dead. Don't trouble the master. Tells the father and mother, don't be afraid, just believe. He takes Peter, James, and John up there, and he raises her from the dead. See, the friends of God get some special connection, but it starts with your heart and mine. Where are you in your friendship with God? Enoch was known as a person who walked closely in fellowship Learning to walk with God. Here's part of this. Learning to walk with God. We're going to see this in Ephesians. Learning to walk with God. Enoch walked so closely in that fellowship with him that God translated him. He said, I don't even want this guy to die. Just let him take him up. First rapture. 
But we see several other times where Enoch's mentioned. Look at Hebrews there, 1b. It says, Enoch was known as a person who pleased God, and God translated him in Hebrews 11.5. He had a testimony. In Hebrews 11, it says, he had a testimony before he was translated. And so, I want you to look at the, te- we may forget this sometimes, Enoch was just a, pre- a, a predecessor of Noah. You know how bad it was in Noah's day? I'm sad I ever made man. I'm going to wipe them all out. There's only one righteous, and that's Enoch's translated, so you got Noah. It's wicked. It is a wicked, wicked season. And here's Enoch walking as a righteous man before God. Come on. You see all the wickedness going around right now? We can be the righteous ones that can walk before him. We can be the ones that walk with him and please him. We can do that. There's an example of it. There's a, he says, I've given you everything you need to live a godly life. He's empowered you with divine power to walk this thing out so that you're not trapped by all the garbage that's going on out there. There's this place where he says, Enoch had a testimony. In Jude, Jesus' half-brother writes in Jude, verse 14 and 15, it says he had a testimony, but he prophesied to this evil generation what was going on, and then God took him. There are those who are alive right now doing the same thing, prophesying, believing God. What are the disciples? Number two, this is learn from Jesus. He says, I have brought to you to know the Father. I've shared with you disciples. It's taken me three and a half some odd years, but I have shown you the Father. That's why it must have really, there when in John 14, he says, I'm going away. You don't know where I'm going. He said, we don't have any idea where you're going. Well, he says, if you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's something about knowing the Father. Study the Scriptures. Learn what Jesus said about the Father. Jesus, we're to be like Jesus, right? So learn from Jesus who the Father is. He'll tell you what to do. Believe God, and it's counted for righteousness. I love this one in Amos 3.8. Number three there. How can two walk together unless they agree? You ever try to walk with somebody that's not walking with you? You know, window shopping with my wife, and she's over here. No, no, we're going this way. No, I want to see this. We're not walking together. Somebody's got a lead. Let me be the leader right now, right? We don't shop a lot together, praise the living God. I can submit, but it's not all easy. Anyway, um, Amos 3.8, who can walk together unless they agree, Right? Then he warns us. Let's turn here. Look at, uh, I want to look at a couple of scriptures. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Walking with God. This ought to encourage you. And then I'll land this thing. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Ephesians 2, chapter, Ephesians 2, chapter, verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin. You practiced it. You're probably good at it like me. Just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us, we used to live that way. Following the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature, By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else, but God. 
is so rich in his mercy that he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the, the dead. And it's only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ, and he seats us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ. So God can point to us in all the future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and the kindness towards us as shown in all that he's done for us who are united with Christ. God saved us by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation's not the reward for the things, the good things that you've done. No, none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned long ago. That word, masterpiece, King James says workmanship. In the, in the Greek, that's the word poema, the word we get poem. Do you realize that you're God's poem that he wrote, that he wants you to walk out? You are his poem. If somebody says, no, I'm God's poema. Impress them. Get a cup of coffee. Right? I'm a masterpiece. You may feel like a big mess. Man, there's so many. <laughs> no, you're just that chiseled piece of fine stone that he's just working on. He's got a vision. He began working on the piece of stone over here. But when it's done, it'll be better than any masterpiece ever created by human hands. Walk in that place. All right, turn with me to James 4. Well, how do we stay out of worldliness? James doesn't mix any words here. I know James that doesn't mix any words. Amen? James 4, 4 says this. This is that whole thing about don't be friends with the world. Draw close to God, James tells us. In verse 4, he warns them about having love for other things. You can... You can um, love things about your life and all the gifts and good gifts He gives us, your fellowship, your friends, even your possessions. But if you let the money, if you love money or you love your possessions more than you love God, that's called idolatry, and then you're an adulterer. You'd rather have that love than my love, and He calls you an adulterer. And He goes on, He picks it up here, and He says, you love anything more than you love me? You love your family more than you love me? You love your son and your daughter more than you love me? You're not worthy of being mine. That's pretty strong language. He goes on in verse 4, 4 of James. He goes, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I'll say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. What do you think the Scriptures mean when they say that the Spirit of God has placed within you and is filled with envy? And he gives more grace. There's this place of challenge yourself. What is it that I might love more than I love you? If you're unwilling to give it up, maybe it's your golf game on Sunday morning or your hunting on Sunday morning or I don't want to be inconvenienced by this person who keeps bothering me. I'd rather have my quiet night. If the Lord tells you to do it, and he's your friend, 
you'll do it for your friend Jesus. So this place, let me just, one more scripture. Take a look at um, 1 John 2.15. Just flip to the right a little bit. 1 John 2.15. Do not love this world, nor the things that it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers you only cravings for physical pleasure, cravings for everything that we see, pride in our achievements, our possessions. They're not from the Father, but they're from the world. And this world is fading away along with everything in the people crave. But anyone who do, does what pleases God will live forever. Walk in the light, number five there. Walk in the light and have fellowship with Him. So He tells us that He is the light and we're to walk there. You know that Scripture in Matthew 7 where it says, there will be on that day those who call me Lord, Lord, but he turns to them, he says, I never knew you. But their argument is, but we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name. That's a very, very scary rubber meets the road scripture. He turns to them, he says, yeah, you did the works, you served, but I never knew you and what you did was actually lawless. It was unauthorized. You may, there's not everybody that prophesies and casts out demons. That's a crack above many of the normal folks I've been in church with. And so there's this place where they did those things, but what they did was unauthorized. He didn't ask them to do it. So what's their motive? What's which is lawless is a there's a motivation there that is was it self-driven? Was it for benefit? What what I don't know. But it's worth asking the Holy Spirit. Remember he said in James 1, 6, he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask the Lord, who will tell But don't be double-minded about it. Be really good. It's, Lord, I don't ever want to be one of those who gets before you, who thinks I'm okay. But he says, I, I never knew you. Oh, please, Jesus. I think if we ask him, he, he's always faithful, right? He's always faithful. So you don't have to be afraid about this. When I share that scripture, you, some people who have this issue with fathers, it's like he's going to whack me. He's a, he's a really man, mean and angry God. We are not children in the hands of an angry God. We're not. And so he's a loving father. And when an obedient child comes and says, Dad, I, I want to make sure we're okay. Oh, okay. He'll orchestrate it. <laughs> I tell people who are not saved, I said, look, how about just praying? Wouldn't you like to know if God's real? Why don't you just pray, God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. Woo-hoo-hoo. Hang on. Here we go. He will do it. I can tell you. I did it. <laughs> now, not the way I would have liked him to do it, but hey, he got my attention. And so, do you want to be a friend of God? I know I'm talking to folks that want to be friends of God. And so, that journey that you're on, we're all in different places and certainly we sang a song, there is no condemnation, and nothing can separate us from the love of God, no matter how high, wide, tall. It, he can't. We're not condemned. You're not ashamed. You're not guilted. So if there's anything going on that says, oh, my gosh. No, let the Holy Spirit enjoin you with an invitation to come on in. Amen? So let's stand. I want to invite the ministry team, if you'll come.
Ashley, if you wouldn't mind just playing a little bit there and in the background and ministry team, if you'll please wear your mask so we can whisper in ears or do whatever close by. Those that are joining us by live stream, I want to thank you for being with us this morning. But there's this place I would encourage you to really pursue and ask God about friendship. I want to be the friend of God. I want to move from servanthood to friendship. I want to move from being a bridesmaid to the bride, <laughs> right? The bridegroom is coming for a bride, Revelation 19. And so we want to, we, we don't want to be just part of the bridal party. That's nice, serving the bride, but we want to be the bride. And she doesn't have any spots or wrinkles. And the garment she wears, Revelation 19, are the good deeds she's done for the king. So, Lord, we thank you. I just want to invite right now, maybe you just close your eyes for a moment. Holy Spirit, I ask for revelation. I'm, I'm, I'm knocking on heaven's door. Jeremiah 33, call to me and I'll answer you. And I'll show you great and mighty things. Lord, I'm asking you to bring about dreams, vision, revelations, divine appointments, connections, that your people that are listening to the sound of my voice, they will know this was a God set up. I had two this past week. I knew that I knew this was a God set up. And when that happens, it's like I'm in his will and I'm going for it. Come on, God, I ask for you to release that. The, the friends of God are given secrets. They are giving the inside track with God. They're taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're brought up in the upper room where the child is dead, and they get to witness the raising of the dead. The blind shall see, the lame shall walk. They'll be the ones that they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. These are the signs, Mark 16, these are the signs of them that believe. They will cast out demons in my name, handle the deadly things without harm, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. I'm asking for divine appointments this week that we're going to have testimonies of people coming back. Pastor, you're not going to believe what happened? Oh, I will. Come on. Signs following. The signs and wonders will verify the message that you carry is the gospel of the peace of the kingdom. You are the gospel walking people filled with the helmet of salvation, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the belt that you carry is truthfulness, a sword and a shield, and a breastplate of righteousness in Christ Jesus. But a mantle of praise, put a song on your heart, singing the glorious praises because he's going to inhabit the praise of his people. So God, I thank you. We am Release them right now. That mission field is right outside that back door. And as you walk out there, recognize I'm a missionary for God. Waiting to see what God's going to do because I'm his friend. And I thank you now, Jesus, for what you're doing here. And I bless your holy name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.